I cannot tell you what a joy it is to be here this morning. Uh, this was home for so many years. A lot of familiar faces, a lot of new faces, and I want us just to fellowship together in the Word of God. I want you to take your Bible, open it up with me to Philippians chapter 2. Now those little notes in your bulletin say Matthew 9, you just kind of file those away, and uh, Tommy Owens, if you just have a uh, a desire that can't be quenched to fill out those blanks you just have Don invite me back and we'll do those but the Lord changed everything on the drive over this morning if you uh, study the book of Philippians and you go out and buy commentaries most of the commentaries will say that the theme of the book of Philippians is joy but I think if you study the book of Philippians deeply, over and over, you'll find out that there is another and a deeper theme of this book, and it is fellowship. How we are to be rightly related to one another in the body of Christ. And the joy that Philippians talks about is the joy of being rightly related in our fellowship with one another. Now, we, we throw that word fellowship around a lot, don't we? Well, let's go out and have coffee and fellowship. Or come over to our house and we'll have desserts and we'll fellowship. And all of those things are good and a vital part of what it means in fellowship. But fellowship is much deeper it carries the idea of lives that are intertwined together in Jesus, that share life together in his bodies. We are members of one another. Paul says that that is such an intimate relationship in, in Romans 12 that if one rejoices, all rejoices. If one weeps, all weeps. And so Paul is writing to us about fellowship. He's writing about to a church that, that had a special place in his heart. He, he planted the church at Philippi. And in the first chapter as he, he addresses this letter, he talks about the great joy that he has in his heart every time that he prays for them. And then he thanks God for their fellowship in the gospel, how they had partnered with him, how they prayed for him, how they had sent love offerings to support him. And, and to the Corinthians, he said that they had given graciously and generously out of their poverty to promote and to father the gospel. And they had sent one of their pastors, Epaphroditus, to see how Paul is doing. And so there is a special relationship that Paul has with this church. But as special and great as this church was, they had a problem. When I was uh, pastoring the Siloam Baptist Church in, in uh, Powdersville, Arkansas, uh, we had a Christian school, and so we had hundreds and hundreds of students just running around all day long. And one day during school, we found a giant copperhead slithering down the hall. And, of course, we killed it, and, but we didn't know where it came from. 
Well, we had a mission organization that had contacted us and asked us if they could headquarter in the church. And so we were cleaning out space for them. And, and we had a, a room where we were going to put all of their office equipment. It was a room that had been used as a storage room. And it was filled with old paper financial records before everything was computerized. And they had just been left there for years and ignored. Nobody ever looked at them. And so we hired a couple of young men to uh, clean out all of that paper. And suddenly, those two young men ran into the office in a, pack, in a panic. Because one of them had lifted up a stack of old financial records. And when he moved back, there was a mama copperhead, and a bunch of little babies. I mean, there were snakes lurking in our church. Now, we didn't say, well, just kind of leave them alone and they might go away. Can I tell you what we did? We found holes and axes and everything. We killed every one of them. The only good snake is a dead snake. There was a poisonous snake in the church at Philippi that threatened the health of the church. There was disagreement, dissension, and conflict. And because Paul so loved this church, he writes to them to address this whole issue of fellowship. Now, he, he doesn't criticize them. He doesn't beat them up. But because of the problem that he has and because the original serpent, Satan, attacks the fellowship of the body of Christ with all of his uh, deceitful lies, with all of his subtle temptations, because he knows that if he can disrupt fellowship, he can rob a local church of spiritual power, Paul writes to them. He writes straightforward instruction and loving encouragement. Now, within that, writing to them about fellowship, the strongest words that he speaks on fellowship are found in chapter 2. Now, I want you to read with me. We're going to read the first four verses, and then we'll go all the way through verse 11. So read with me. Paul says, So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affections and sympathies, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and uh, of one mind. Do nothing with selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. Let each of you look not only on to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Now, in, in those verses, Paul gives us three things about fellowship. One, number one, he gives us the motivation of fellowship. That, that's, that's in verse 1. And what it really means, if you've learned 
anything spiritually from the new life that you've received in Christ. Listen to how he puts it. He says, if there is any encouragement in Christ. That word encouragement is parakleo. It's the same word that Jesus used to talk about the ministry of the Holy Spirit. It means to come alongside of and to help along the way to speak words that that will encourage someone and if they need to help bear their burden and so Paul says if there is any encouragement that you have learned from Christ that you've learned from your salvation (laughs) let me ask you how many of you here this morning were saved because you deserve to be saved No, we were all saved the same way, weren't we? We were saved by grace. We sang those great songs of grace today. You know what grace means? It means that Jesus gave me what I don't deserve and what I have no right to expect. He saved me by His grace. So if you are encouraged by being graced by God, and if you've been graced by God, you are to be a dispenser of grace. If there's any encouragement in your union with Christ, the new life that you receive by being united with Him, Paul said it in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, If any man be in Christ, he is a what? New creation. The old is past. Behold, the new has come. So what he's saying, if you've been encouraged by meeting and knowing and walking with Jesus, then he says, if there's any comfort of love, that word comfort means a gentle encouragement. If you've been overwhelmed by the extravagant, extraordinary love of God, that God would demonstrate his love towards you in that while you were yet a sinner, Christ died for you. And if that love is being shed abroad, reproduced in your life by the Holy Spirit, If you learn anything from the love of God. Third thing he says, if there's any participation in the Spirit. If God the Holy Spirit indwells you and you can't be a believer without God the Holy Spirit living inside of you. And if you're walking in the Spirit then the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, gentleness, meekness, kindness, patience, self-control will be coming out in your life, right? He said, you have a participation of the Spirit. And, and then he gives a fourth motivation. He, he talks about affections and sympathy. That talks about mercies. Have you received the mercy of God and, and His mercies that are new every day in your life? He says, Have you learned anything from your salvation, your new creation, what God's doing deep in your life? 
And after he gives us those motivations, he turns to the meaning of fellowship. It's found in verse 2. He says, if you've learned anything from your salvation, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord, and one mind. We are to be headed in the same direction. We are to think the same things. We are to have an overwhelming love that governs our lives. That's what he's talking about. What is it that knits the body of Christ together? It is the overwhelming lordship of Jesus over our lives, right? It is our belief in the word of God. How many of you believe that the Bible is the very Word of God. True, true. Everything that God says is true and speaks to our lives. We are joined together by God's purpose for our lives that we would, as the Great Commission say, love God and love people. And as the Great Commission says, we would share Jesus and make disciples. Those are the big things that unite us. And can I tell you that everything else is either peripheral or petty <laughs> he says if you've learned anything from your salvation then you have this and, and, and well, this oneness and, and if you take those words in in verse 2 same mind same love being a full accord in one mind and you go into the book of Acts and you find any time and every time a combination of those words are used, people were in one mind, one heart, one accord, it is always followed by an extraordinary moving of God that results in the saving of a lot of people or the building up of the church. Now, after he gives us uh, the... the the, the marks of fellowship, he, or next he gives us the marks of fellowship. The meaning is in verse 2, the marks start in verse 3. And he does the marks of fellowship in a negative and a positive way. The negative are the things that we are not to do. The things that keep fellowship from happening. And then he gives us a contrast. So he says in verse 2, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit. Don't do anything to promote self is what he's saying. Don't be self-centered and self-demanding within the body of Christ. Don't be, well, if they don't sing what I like... Or if the decisions they make aren't what I think are best, and I, I'm going to grumble and gripe, and I, you know. No, he said, don't be self-centered. Not about you and me. It's all about Jesus. He says, put away selfishness. Now, here is the huge contrast. Listen to what he says. Put away self-centeredness, but in humility. You know what humility is? 
It is the intentional self-lowering. It is saying no to self and yes to Jesus. In humility. What is the expression of that humility within the body of Christ? Count others more significant than yourself. Husbands, do you count your wife as more significant than you? If you don't, you don't love her as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. Are you more concerned with Jesus working deeply in the lives of other people here? Or more concerned going away saying, man, I feel good, or I didn't like that? That's what he's saying. He, he, he expands it. In, in, in verse 4, let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of, interest of others. Now let me ask you, how many of you do that naturally? I don't know about you, but the default setting of my heart is selfish. I mean, if I just... If it's left to me, I don't pray in the morning. I don't surrender my life. I don't cry out to be filled with the Spirit. I don't want to abide in Christ. I just want to live life and walk in the flesh. I'm going to be selfish. How do you not do that? And Paul makes the transition, and he wants us to know that fellowship, the kind of fellowship that he talks about here, humility that looks upon the needs of others, is a vital part of discipleship and growing in Christ's likeness of life. And he has a transition in verse 5. And that is, let this mind be in you that is yours in Christ Jesus. The King James says, have this mind in you which... In, in Christ Jesus. Let this attitude be in you that you learn from Jesus. Now, everything up to now has just been an introduction. Because Paul is going to give us the great, one of the greatest statements about Jesus in the New Testament. He's going to do it in three ways. I want you to read with me, all right? Starting in verse 5. Have this mind among you, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in, the in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him 
and bestowed upon him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, Paul says, here's what fellowship really looks like. But if you want to really know what it means, you let the mind of Christ govern your life. And he says three things about Jesus. First of all, he talks about his eternal deity. Talked about the fact that he existed in the form of God. He was Martha. He was the essential essence of God. He is God of very God, co-equal with and co-eternal with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. John 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. <laughs> when I was at seminary, Mike, I was doing my Greek homework, Janet and our youngest, our oldest, Matt, was small. They'd gone somewhere, and I was home by myself. It was a Saturday morning, and I'm, I'm translating, and there's a knock on the door. And I open the door, and there is a passel of Jehovah Witnesses. Now, usually there are just two. A, a, a passel is a bunch. And what I discovered, they had one of the main men in the state who came in that day, and he was teaching all of them how to do it. And so they knocked on my door, and the spider said to the flies, come on in. <laughs> and I said, you know, uh, he started. And I said, well, let me ask you, what do you, what do you believe about Jesus? And uh, he said, uh, well, you know, we, we believe in Jesus. Well, what do you believe about Jesus? Well, he's the first creation. I said, you know, I, th I think I remember something. Doesn't the Bible say something like, you know, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God? He said, oh, you know, a lot of people make that mistake. That's a mistranslation. That's not what the Greek says. I said, Really? Picked up my Greek Testament, turned it to John 1, walked over to him. And I said, uh, would you tell me what it says? He said, what's that? I said, that's the Greek. And I backed up to the front door so they couldn't get away. <laughs> and I preached Jesus, who was in the beginning with God, and who is God. That's what Paul wants us to understand. When we talk about letting this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, we're talking about eternal God, the Lord of glory. Now, after he says that, he gives us his loving and sacrificial humiliation. Listen to what it says. Though he were in the form of God, he did not count equality 
with God as a thing to be grasped. Now, listen to what it's saying. Because of your need, my need, all of our needs, the need of the world for a Savior. Jesus didn't cling to the prerogatives of his deity. His prerogatives were to be enthroned. The object of eternal worship and glory. He didn't cling to that. But he emptied himself. Made himself of no reputation. He didn't cease to be God. But he willingly became man. Not half God, half man. All of God, all of man. But he humbled himself. He humbled himself, Paul said, by taking upon himself the form of a servant. Now think with me. The eternal Lord of glory willingly because of our needs steps off of a throne, his throne, birthed in the humility of the barn. He becomes the servant. He would say, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Do you want it meant for Jesus to become a servant? Now, Paul's calling us to be a servant, right? To look upon the needs of others. Do you know what it meant for Jesus to become a servant? Go to the night before the crucifixion. His disciples are in an upper room. He's about to celebrate the first Lord's Supper. To speak about what is going to happen on the cross, his broken body and shed blood. But before he does that, the disciples sit on a table about this high with cushions. They would be reclined with their feet out. And Jesus, eternal God, takes a towel, girds himself in a basin of water. And he goes around He washes dusty, dirty feet. Hospitality was when people came into your home, you had their feet washed, but the feet washing went to the lowest servant in the house. Now, is it a lot for Jesus to tell you to look upon the needs of others when he, the Lord of glory, became the servant? And not only that, found in the fashion of a man, he became obedient to death, even the death of the cross all because of your need my need 
He became the suffering servant, wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquity. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. So Paul wants us to understand what it really means to be a disciple of Jesus, a follower of Jesus. What it really means to bow the knee and say, Jesus is Lord. What it means to be a part of the body of Christ that Jesus is the head over. He doesn't ask anything from us that he doesn't do <laughs> immeasurably beyond. And so he speaks. He's eternal God who sacrificially humbled himself. But after his sacrificial humiliation, Paul goes to his glorious exaltation. <laughs> because of this, therefore, because Jesus did this, God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every now knee should bow of things in heaven, things in heaven, things on earth, and things under the earth, and that every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is the glory to God, uh, to the glory of God. You know what that simply says? Because of what Jesus did in humbling himself and becoming the servant and dying on the cross, the day is coming when every creation is going to have to bow the knee and say, Jesus is Lord. Every demon, Satan himself, everyone who has rejected and refused him, everyone is going to bow the knee because of his glory. For too many, it'll be too late. And if you've not done it, today's the day to do it. But what Paul is wanting us to know is that the way up is down. Exalt yourself and you'll be abased. Bow your knee and it's God who will exalt. James put it this way. He says, God resists the proud. Put a parenthesis, always. God resists the proud always, and God gives grace to the humble always. You and I are never more like Satan than when we're proud. We're never more like Jesus than when we're humble.